welcome to my mommy's podcast. This podcast is sponsored by Fabletics, my go-to source for quality, affordable athletic wear. This company was co-founded by Kate Hudson with a mission to bring trendy athletic wear to everyone at affordable prices. And here's how they do that. After you take a quick 60 second style quiz, they give you a personalized showroom of pieces that are specifically catered towards your own unique style. Right now, you can get two pairs of leggings for only $24. That's a $99 value and less than the price of a Lululemon sports bra, even secondhand on, at a website. So um, as a VIP, you can get all of that at fabletics.com forward slash wellness mama. And that includes my favorite, the high-waisted power hold leggings that are so flattering, even in places that I have a little bit of a bulge or loose skin from all of my pregnancies. Make sure you enter your email address at the end of the quiz because you will receive exclusive monthly discounts and sales, especially seasonal sales, and the inside scoop about new collections that haven't been released yet. Again, check out fabletics.com forward slash wellness mama. That's F-A-B-L-E-T. ICS.com forward slash wellness mama to grab the deal while you can and check out my favorite power hold leggings while they're still in stock as styles change monthly. This podcast is brought to you by the Keon Clean Energy Bar. We all know that finding healthy snacks for you and your kids is no simple task. Most snacks, even the so called healthy ones, are high in sugar, don't have a lot of nutrients, or will leave you feeling tired or hungrier than before. That's why Keon created the Keon Clean Energy Bar, which is delicious and all natural, and it will satisfy your appetite and give stable, long-lasting energy. My kids love these, and I love that Keon bars are made from all real food ingredients, like coconut, almonds, and chia. They have zero refined sugar. They have a lot of healthy fats and clean protein, so they are a clean source of fuel for the body and brain. They're naturally gluten, dairy, and soy-free contain lots of electrolytes, vitamins, and minerals. And even though they're chocolate, they won't melt in the heat or freeze in the cold. And their delicious chocolatey coconut flavor and texture is one that both kids and adults love. Right now you can get 10% off the Keon Clean Energy Bar by going to getkeon.com forward slash wellness mama and using the code mama10, M-A-M-A 10 at checkout. So again, that's G-E-T-K-I-O-N.com slash wellness mama and make sure to use the discount code capital m-a-m-a 10. Hello and welcome to the wellness mama podcast. I'm Katie from wellnessmama.com and this episode is a much requested round two with Dr. Chris Masterjohn. Like our first episode we go deep on various aspects of nutrition and Chris is one of the smartest people I know When it comes to most of these topics, he earned a PhD in nutritional sciences from the University of Connecticut and served as assistant professor of health and nutrition sciences at Brooklyn College. He has a really amazing guide called the Ultimate Cheat Sheet, which helps you decode your own body's nutritional needs, as well as a really informative website and podcast. I highly recommend both. And I know that you are going to enjoy this episode as much as I did. Chris, welcome back. Thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me, Katie. It's great to be here. Well, your first interview was so helpful. We went deep on a lot of nutritional topics, and I've heard from a lot of the audience how some of your tips on like pantothenic acid helping skin has been really amazing for them. And I knew I had to have you back to go into go deeper on different nutrients and to learn more. And on this episode, I'd really love to talk a little bit more women specific because I think women 
potentially deal with a bunch of symptoms that men may not face because of all the hormone changes that we go through, whether it be monthly, whether it be during pregnancy. Um, We just have a lot more going on, I think, than guys do. And I know if you look at the chart, like you guys have hormone fluctuations, but women is almost like a roller coaster every month just because we have all these hormones coming into play. So I'd actually love to start with just like an overview of things that you found that seem to be nutrient deficiencies related to those hormone changes each month that come with, um, you know, with the monthly period and with ovulation. Um, What are some things we need to know and be aware of when it comes to that? Yeah. So my interest in this first peaked when I was talking to a consulting client of mine who was having real bad problems with headaches and she hadn't identified any triggers. And so we talked about food triggers as nothing. And she didn't offer the fact that it correlated with her menstrual cycle, maybe because she didn't think it would make any sense until I asked. And then she was like, yeah, they always occur on day 13. That's when they're the worst. And then a couple of days before I have my period, they, they often occur and they're not quite as bad. And so I look at the chart, and you know, sure enough, that corresponds to the big, um, the big estrogen peak around ovulation, and then the smaller estrogen peak that happens to also be balanced with more progesterone in the days leading up to menstruation. And so I think, you know, at the time I was researching histamine a lot, and so the first thing I think is, well, let me see what estrogen does to diamine oxidase activity, diamine oxidase or DAO is an enzyme that you need a number of nutrients for, including B6 and copper, especially, uh, and vitamin C. But um, So diamine oxidase is one of the main ways that you clear histamine. And so sure enough, estrogen massively down-regulates diamine oxidase activity. And so I suggest to my client, she should try supplementing with diamine oxidase proactively around those times of your menstrual cycle and it worked. Uh, so I, you know, that was the, the the first place that got me interested in this. But there's, you know, once you look into this a little bit more deeply, I think we can paint a little bit of a broader picture and one that applies to several different contexts. So one area that's been of quite a bit of interest in, uh, I think, for, for years at this point, has been the fact that. For reasons that no one has really identified that well, high-dose vitamin B6 supplementation has been at least promising, if not often effective, in treating morning sickness associated with pregnancy. And so it seems like the morning sickness of pregnancy must be tied in some way to something that happened has to do with B6. So one hypothesis that came out a couple of years ago that I think is is a very compelling argument is that estrogen increases hydrogen sulfide production and hydrogen sulfide can generate sulfite which is toxic and which happens to be something that's added to a lot of medications, cosmetics and processed foods as a preservative that a lot of people don't tell, you know, some people like certain wines give them really bad headaches and it's because of the sulfites in the wine. Well, when you're pregnant, you're making sulfite and you're not, you're not making sulfite to make sulfite. You're making hydrogen sulfide gas, which although like we would typically associate it with the smell of rotten eggs at high doses has been discovered in recent years to be a very important 
uh, signaling molecule that is, uh, among other things, a vasodilator. So hydrogen sulfide gas falls into a very small category of things that can dilate blood vessels along with nitric oxide, which has been known about for a much longer period of time. And hydrogen sulfide is particularly important in delivering blood to the placenta when you're pregnant. And it also has other activities related to pregnancy. For example, it suppresses preterm labor. And so keeping it's necessary to keep hydrogen sulfide levels higher than they would be when you're not pregnant or for, for probably any time when you're a man in order to prevent you from going into labor early, but also just to keep the blood flow to the placenta going to nourish the growing baby. And now it so happens that a small portion of hydrogen sulfide is going to be turned into sulfite, which is a toxic compound. And sulfite, we all generate sulfite in the course of normal metabolism from any of the sources of sulfur in our diet, especially the sulfur-containing amino acids that are in the protein we eat. And in order to neutralize that sulfite, we use a mineral, molybdenum, to convert the sulfite, which is toxic, to sulfate. Sulfate is both not toxic and it's also highly useful. We use it for detoxification. We use it for regulating hormones. We use it to synthesize structural things that are protective against cardiovascular disease, highly protective against arthritis in our joints and, and so on. So you basically have this balance between sulfite, which is toxic, and sulfate, sulfate which is extremely necessary and useful. And the more sulfite you generate, the more you need to convert it to sulfate. Even if you don't need extra sulfate, you still need to get rid of sulfite because it's toxic. And you, you do that with molybdenum. So that would imply that during pregnancy, because of increased hydrogen sulfide, you are going to generate uh, more sulfite. Your molybdenum needs will increase to make sulfate. Now, what happens to molybdenum intakes during pregnancy? Well, by far and away, the best source of molybdenum is beans. And in pregnancy, a lot of women develop aversions to beans and other molybdenum-rich foods just because they're more difficult to tolerate digestively and to, as well as taste aversions and things like that. So in someone who's pregnant, molybdenum intakes tend to go down just because they're less tolerant of molybdenum-rich foods. And then at the same time, molybdenum needs go up because of the increased sulfite generation. Now, why would that relate to vitamin B6? Well, it turns out that sulfite binds to B6 and essentially destroys it, basically eliminates it from the body. So sulfite can induce a B6 deficiency. And high doses of B6 can be used to clear away sulfite that you were not able to, to convert into the non-toxic sulfate using molybdenum. So basically, this hypothesis is that molybdenum needs would go up, but since most pregnant women aren't meeting those needs for molybdenum, high doses of B6 can act as... I want to say band-aid solution, but it's not really band-aid because it's not like you're just managing the symptoms. You are clearing away the sulfite, but sort of like a, but you can't, so like the doses of B6 used in, in morning sickness would be like 100 milligrams a day, completely impossible to get from food. So 
I don't even want to call it a backup mechanism. Like molybdenum at nutritional doses would be really, really useful here and would be most related to the root cause. High doses of B6 are very natural, very safe and effective, uh, but they're one step removed away from the root cause. It's like because you didn't have the molybdenum, you're more reliant on the B6. And who knows exactly what that's doing? You know, maybe maybe the sulfite, because it's giving you a B6 deficiency, that itself is taking away from important things that B6 would do to prevent morning sickness. Or it might just be that the B, extra B6 is mopping up the sulfite and the sulfite is what's causing morning sickness. One of the things, now sulfite does a bunch of toxic things, but one of the things that it does is it can cause mast cells to release histamine. And histamine in the gut can give you all kinds of gut-related issues like diarrhea, for example, make you feel nauseated, you know, things that could be plausibly related to morning sickness, especially if because of B6 deficiency, and actually I think sulfite also inhibits diamine oxidase, and diamine oxidase requires B6, and that's need to clear histamine from foods. So you might on top of everything become more histamine intolerant to uh, more intolerant to histamine in certain foods, maybe. Um, so who knows what the mechanisms are? But the 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 sort of like takeaway point is that because sulfite's going up, your needs for molybdenum are going up, and if you don't have enough molybdenum, your needs for B six are going to go up. But they're not going to go up within the nutritional range. They're going to go up like ridiculously high. So you know maybe on a ridiculously high B six intake from natural foods. You could hit 10 milligrams of B6, but you might need 100 milligrams to mop up all that sulfite, right? So it's it's not insane amounts, but it's, it's way out of what you could get from natural foods. And now looking at that, I'm like, well, what about outside of pregnancy? Does... You know what's regulating this? Is it estrogen? Um, and yes, it's estrogen that's regulating sulfite. I, I don't know what the effect of progesterone is. So I, I had trouble finding direct research on it. It's, but it, it can't be the case that progesterone is effective at countering the effect of estrogen because, because progesterone rises in pregnancy alongside estrogen, and none of this would be an issue in pregnancy if progesterone was really protective. Uh, the other thing is, if you look at like Plan B has some side effects that are very similar to the morning sickness of pregnancy, and Plan B doesn't have any estrogen in it. It's an emergency con emergency post-sex contraceptive that only has a synthetic form of progesterone in it. So I don't know what progesterone does to this, uh, but I wouldn't be surprised if progesterone was actually acting in concert with estrogen here and maybe augmenting its effects just because this seems to be like a highly pregnancy-related thing. But in any case, um, you can tie this to the estrogen peaks in the menstrual cycle, especially you know the big peaks are the the big peak is around ovulation the more moderate peak is in the days leading up to menstruation and then you could also tie it to other supplemental estrogens so most birth control patch or pill has estrogen in it and then you know mo hormone replacement therapy that women would typically go on after menopause has estrogen in it and so any of these sources of estrogen are going to affect diamine oxidase and possibly make you histamine intolerant. And they're also going to increase sulfite production, increase your needs for molybdenum, and possibly increase your needs for B6. I think those are the things that are most related to headaches, nausea, 
any other form of digestive complaints, feeling queasy, or just like general GI distress, and any kind of allergy-like symptoms, so itching, hives, etc. You know, there, we could we could branch off from there in numerous directions, but I think th- that's the sort of most interesting thing I've been synthesizing lately related to this stuff. That's so fascinating. And it seems like a vicious cycle. Once you're in that, it would be difficult to pull out of it without, like you said, supplementation. So if I'm understanding correctly, would this be maybe something if people have symptoms more so around ovulation when that estrogen spike is, or they're taking an estrogen-based birth control, these would be this would be something they could look at and try? Yeah. In fact, um, I, I, I'd, go, I, I'd go a little bit further than that. So Another thing that that has been known for decades to happen when women are on birth control is that the amino acid tryptophan, which is used to make serotonin and is used to make melatonin and is also used to make niacin, which is vitamin B3, estrogen increases the production of niacin vitamin B3 from tryptophan. And in so doing, there's a neurotoxic compound that kind of spills out of the pathway called quinolinate. And there are studies, this has been known for a long time and, and yet no one knows it because what happened was they tested different doses of B6 to see what could normalize tryptophan metabolism. And I, you know, I would imagine this to be beneficial for insomnia and headaches in particular. So what they did was they tested a couple low doses up to two milligrams and they tested 20 milligrams. And they found that 20 milligrams of B6 completely resolved the completely made tryptophan metabolism totally normal. But all of the doses that they considered reasonable to get from food didn't. And so they said, they basically dismissed their own finding about 20 milligrams and said like, because there's this bias in in, uh, in mainstream nutrition where they don't want everyone running out around taking supplements. So they looked at that and they said like, that can't, that that effect can't be like a real effect like B6 obviously isn't doing something here because 20 milligrams is a ridiculous dose and we're not going to tell people to take 20 milligrams. Even though it's well under what the Institute of Medicine has set as the dose that would be that would have no safety concerns, which is 100 milligrams. So the reality is that the data have said for decades that 20 milligrams of B6 normalizes the negative effects of birth control on tryptophan metabolism. And there are no reviews that that say that. You have to I had to go back and look at the original papers because the all the all the reviews from people that I would expect about this, uh, I, that, sorry, not expect that I would respect and that would be considered prestigious, they just cite these people citing their own data saying that B6 didn't fully normalized tryptophan metabolism. And you have to go back to the paper and see that 20 milligrams does. So I would go more than that to say that anyone who's on supplemental estrogen should by default take 20 milligrams of B6 and tweak from there. But I I would do it as a precautionary measure. Wow, that's amazing. So, and the safety data, just to reiterate what you said, is up to 100 milligrams that can be safely taken based on what they've demonstrated. Is that also during pregnancy? Yeah, there's there's no alteration to the the safe limit in in pregnancy for B6. 
uh, or for molybdenum, which is the other nutrient we were talking about before. And there are people anecdotally who believe that dose that they've developed problems from taking high doses of B6 that are in that range. But there's no published data of case reports showing that. And the the published data of case reports shows that B6 can have neurotoxic effects at very high doses. All of those studies have used pyridoxine, and I actually think pyridoxal 5-phosphate is the ideal form, P5P. Uh, all of those studies also showed that the consequences went away as soon as you removed the supplement. And the minimum dose of B6 in any of those studies was 500 milligrams a day. Nothing below that has been shown to have negative effects. So when the Institute of Medicine set the tolerable upper intake level or TUIL, which is, you know, a lot of people are familiar with the RDA, the TUIL, the upper intake level is always set alongside the RDA. And the definition is basically, this is the dose that we would expect to have no risk of adverse effects in the general population. And that doesn't rule out that someone might have a hypersensitivity disorder or something like that. But you know, if you take 100 people and you put them all on 100 milligrams of B6, you would expect approximately zero people to develop any problems from that. And so, but and 20 milligrams, and you know, what they did with that was they took the lowest observed adverse effect at 500 milligrams and they applied a safety factor of fivefold to that. Right. So they said, we don't have any evidence of this occurring at less than 500 milligrams. So we'll take 500 milligrams as the dangerous dose and say that, you know, even if there's a thousand things we don't know, 100 milligrams should be like the mega safe dose. And then 20 milligrams has been shown to normalize tryptophan metabolism, which is five times under that. So it's 25 times under what we have case reports of showing problems of. And, and so, I, you know, it's there's like dramatic windows of safety applied to get down to 20 milligrams. Um, you know, and like it's not well studied. Like maybe the ideal dose that you need is 10 milligrams. I don't know. But there's some studies suggesting that 5 to 10 milligrams are not enough to normalize markers of B6 status in pregnant women, which suggests to me that the ideal dose for preventing, for like minimizing risk of B6 deficiency symptoms during pregnancy and during any conditions of supplemental estrogen is probably at least 10 milligrams. And you know, twenty has been shown to be effective in studies, so I'm I'm happy with I'm happy with that, and I'm and I'm content that it is not a safety risk. Well, and especially that's a water soluble vitamin, right? So, like you said, as soon as you stop taking it, your body should be okay, even if you hit a high dose. Uh, yeah, I mean, I so I actually think that's a myth that has been propagated very widely and doesn't have that much basis that the solubility of a nutrient is related to its toxicity profile. So, so like vitamin E, although it might have some negative effects at high doses by interfering with the function of other fat-soluble vitamins, it doesn't actually have a toxicity syndrome at all. And vitamin B6, which is water-soluble, does. So, even though I mean I, I don't so I don't like yes it's what the case reports showed is that it's reversible I have no idea if that relates to its water solubility or not so niacin has a serious toxicity profile at very high doses 
totally water soluble. You know, thiamine. So like niacin B six both have toxicity profiles at very high doses. Thiamine, which is water soluble, doesn't. Riboflavin, which is considered a water soluble vitamin, but it's actually like fifty percent fat soluble. It's just like halfway in between water and water and fat solubility on a chemical solubility level, and it has no. I mean for at hundreds of times the normal intake has produced no safety concerns whatsoever. So I, I actually think that the solubility really is like largely unrelated to the safety of a nutrient. But yeah, it appears to be completely reversible on the basis that the case reports showing like tingling in the hands and feet on it, that when you remove it, it goes away. That's a really interesting point and good to know because that's definitely something I have heard quite a bit is that if it's water-soluble, it's fine and you have to be really careful with fat-soluble vitamins. Since there's an estrogen component here, is it also logical to to suggest that maybe people with, for instance, PCOS or other things that lead to estrogen dominance or have an estrogen-dominant component could benefit from experimenting with this as well? Yes, I think so. And actually, I think there's a, a um, quite a lot of unanswered questions here. So for example, in males testosterone also increases hydrogen sulfide production in certain cells. And so it's like, what does the increased androgens do in PCOS to this? I have no idea. You know, I'm highly confident in what estrogen is doing here. I'm rather confused about what testosterone is doing, and I really have no idea what progesterone is doing. Yeah. So, so I'm like, I'm highly confident that anything where you're approaching estrogen levels seen at the peaks during the menstrual cycle, pregnancy, birth control, and hormone replacement therapy are highly relevant. I think PCOS has a complex hormonal profile that I don't really understand exactly how it would relate to this, but I would I would definitely consider it because if you think about the recommendations that I would make to compensate for this, basically molybdenum the average dose that you would try to get by default every day is like 45 micrograms. The safe upper intake level is 2,000 micrograms or 2 milligrams. And the safety, the safety profile from that, they couldn't find any reliable human data suggesting problems with excess molybdenum. So they actually took fertility problems in female rats at the body weight adjusted equivalent of 50 milligrams a day and applied this extraordinarily huge safety factor to wind down to two milligrams a day as the safe upper limit for humans. So, you know, to go from a normal, like imagine a pregnant woman is reducing her molybdenum intake just sort of by food aversions and maybe getting down to 30 micrograms a day. There's a lot of room to go up between 30 and 2000 micrograms. And so I'm I'm guessing that you know 3 to 500 micrograms would be more than enough and way within the upper limit for molybdenum and like I said before 20 milligrams of B6 should be more than enough in most cases, you could go up to 100 and still weigh within the upper limit. And I would say that you know anything that seems sex hormone related could plausibly relate to these things. 
my confidence being really high if estrogen being high is the main thing. And then the more complexities you add to that of hormonal imbalance, I'm less and less sure exactly what it means. But if the symptoms of headaches, of insomnia, of queasiness or nausea, of GI distress, or of anything that seems related to allergies like hives and itching and redness, any of that cluster of symptoms that go along with definitely high estrogen and maybe other abnormalities in hormone metabolism, I would say would be something where trying this completely safe thing of adding some extra three to 500 micrograms of molybdenum and 20 milligrams of B6 would to like try and see if it works. That makes perfect sense. But to circle back on histamine for a minute, this is something I'm hearing a lot more about from the audience increasingly. So I, I wonder if it's something that's on the rise. Is this something that is universally worth trying for anyone suffering from histamine issues? And are there other things that come into play as well when we're just talking about histamine? Yeah. Okay. So I think that there are there are some complexities when you get to histamine, and it depends where it's coming from, and it depends whether, for example, it's a food-based thing or it's more than that. So let's like sort of start with the gut and work our way inside. So in the gut, there's histamine that you encounter in your food, and you could also have gut bacteria producing histamine. And if the gut bacteria are producing it, I don't know exactly what you do about that, but it you know shifting the microbiome with prebiotics and probiotics would be the thing that really fits the bill. But anyway, let's just assume the histamine is coming in from your food because there's plenty of histamine in foods. And if the histamine is coming in your, in, in your food, then nausea and diarrhea are probably the big things that you would expect at the gut level. But then the histamine can get inside your blood. And when it's systemic, then that's where you can start to get more allergy-like symptoms like hives, itching, or redness, flushing, that's also when you could get changes in blood pressure. By default, histamine lowers blood pressure, but sometimes you get an adrenaline response to that that causes a secondary increase in blood pressure above normal. So any changes in blood pressure could be plausibly related. And then histamine can increase the permeability of the blood-brain barrier generally and let stuff in, including itself. And if histamine gets into the brain, uh, histamine in the brain usually by default is produced inside the brain in a highly regulated fashion to regulate your wakefulness and alertness. And and this is why if you take Benadryl, for example, you get sleepy and it might knock you out because it's antagonizing the histamine in your brain. On the flip side of that though, too much histamine in the brain could cause insomnia or it could cause generalized anxiety or it could cause panic attacks. So you know, you try so trace it from the gut through the brain and you're getting nausea, diarrhea, then you get inside hives, itching, redness, flushing, then uh, blood pressure changes, then you get into the brain, insomnia, anxiety, panic attacks. So any of those things, the first line of defense is the production of diamine oxidase in the gut. Diamine oxidase, so and you can think of histamine as having two main defenses. Diamine oxidase is the extracellular defense methylation is the intracellular defense. When you're eating food that's outside your cells and it's going through your gut, which is actually literally everything from your mouth to your anus is outside your body. 
because you're we're all sort of like a cylindrical tube where the inside surface is melt the anus that's outside the body the skin is the outside surface outside the body and you have to get, get things get absorbed to get inside the body so in the gut you're outside the body you're outside your cells you're producing massive amounts of diamine oxidase or dao for the purpose of completely neutralizing all the histamine in your food and the diamine oxidase could be missing from the gut due to nutrient deficiencies or due to intestinal damage. Nutrient deficiencies, the ones that are most relevant are B6 and copper. There's some possible, and actually manganese is also important. There are possible roles for vitamin C and possible role for riboflavin, although that hasn't been shown with the human enzyme. Then on top of that, you could just have intestinal damage that's damaging the cells that produce diamine oxidase. That kind of unravels a whole other area that I'm not really an expert in. My expertise is really in the micronutrients, the vitamins and minerals. So for example, if you have an autoimmune condition like celiac disease that's destroying the intestinal cells, or you have some pathogen in there that's you know your immune system's trying to defeat the infection and is causing damage to your intestinal cells... Uh, possibilities like that are reasons for having low diamine oxidase activity. And um, then, of course, I don't really know anything about how to modify this, but you could also have gut bacteria that are producing histamine as well. Then when you get inside, and actually this isn't just inside, you can all, so inside your body or even in the gut, you can have increased mast cell burden. Mast cells are the cells that produce histamine. And now we're getting into the area where we're not talking about the histamine in foods, we're talking about the histamine that you produce yourself. And so the normal way that you would think about this, like the kind of conventional thing that would happen is in an allergy. And in a traditional conventional allergy, you have your immune system reacting to some allergen, produces IgE antibodies that then activate a cascade of things that leads ultimately to the release of histamine by mast cells. You can also have things that cause mast cells to release histamine that you're not allergic to, and that's what sulfite does that we were talking about before. So sulfite will just act on the mast cell to make it release histamine, but it's not an allergy because there was no antibody made by your immune system. It looks like an allergy because you get itching, hives, you know, redness, any of the traditional allergic symptoms that are caused by histamine, and it kind of walks and and talks like an allergy because you might get it in response to certain specific foods if those are foods that have his, histamine in them or have sulfites in them that cause histamine release or whatever. But it's not an allergy because in the case of sulfite or dietary histamine, there's no antibody-mediated response. So, it's, so it looks, talks, walks, smells like an allergy, but it's not. And in the mast cell, there's two two categories of things that we should care about. One is antioxidants because oxidative stress increases histamine release from mast cells. And the other is methylation. And those two things are both like big cans of worms that we could each spend an hour talking about just on its own. Um, but antioxidants are, you know, br to briefly summarize, Antioxidants, I think a lot of people think about as like, oh, those are the things that are in berries and fruits and vegetables and stuff like that, which I think is a misleadingly simplistic way to think about it. Your antioxidant defense is very much based on 
minerals and protein related things that you make yourself. So uh, I don't mean you make the minerals. I mean, you eat the minerals and you use and you have make enzymes that require the minerals. So very briefly, protein, zinc, copper, selenium, iron, and manganese, vitamin E and vitamin C, and all those things, colorful things in fruits and vegetables that people call antioxidants. Those things together are the things we care about in terms of antioxidant defense. And then on the second category, methylation, that's where we get into B12, folate, and choline as the top nutrients. And then we can peel layers away to get at many minerals and B vitamins working underneath those as the main support. You know, so that is, I think, a pretty broad view of histamine generally and all the potential things that you could work on related to it. And then you want to ask questions like, where is the histamine coming from? Because it might be primarily hormonal, like we were talking about before, or you might have a, you know, a rare condition like mast cell activation disorder, or mast cell activation syndrome, which might require finding a very good specialist to start digging away at. That was an amazing overview. Thank you for that. I think you're right. There's so much at play there, but I think so much of what you just said is probably going to be really helpful to a lot of people. And for my own curiosity, uh, I wonder if there's a difference or any other considerations for women who tend to have their symptoms right around their periods or not at ovulation when estrogen strikes, but they have things like migraines or PMS or other symptoms right about when their period begins. Are there other nutrients that come into play in that scenario? Yeah. So first of all, I looked specifically at this once to look at water retention. And in general, I think that the other symptoms of PMS kind of go hand in hand here, but I didn't look at them as much as I was looking at water retention. And I was actually surprised to find that the key difference between women who have PMS symptoms, including water retention, which I was more focused on, and those who don't, is that they actually have higher progesterone levels in the days leading up to menstruation. So the the progesterone should be like an ovulation-related sort of like post-ovulation spike during the, the breakdown of everything produced during ovulation, but it should be cleared effectively by the time you get into menstruation. And the Women who have PMS-related symptoms, especially where I was looking at in water retention, they basically produce the same levels of all the hormones, but the primary difference is their the clearance rate of progesterone is a lot lower. And my suspicion is the water retention issue is driven by the fact that one of the ways that you can get rid of excess progesterone, it's actually, this isn't really a way of getting rid, it shouldn't be a way of getting rid of progesterone. Um, but progesterone, if it's elevated and not cleared through the normal ways, can spill over into aldosterone production, which can cause retention of sodium and loss of potassium. And with retention of sodium comes retention of water. I don't know if that would cause uh, some of the other symptoms, although I could imagine it would, because if you retain water, you're going to get swelling everywhere. And if your blood volume is increasing and you're getting generalized swelling in extracellular space, you're going to put pressure 
in a lot of places that wouldn't otherwise have pressure. And in your head, I think that would cause a headache. I'm not saying that's the only thing, but it just might be a contributor there. And so specifically in the case of water retention, salt is controversial. So there are some cases that I think are the exception to the rule where sometimes you can reduce water retention by increasing salt, but that's not normally the case. And I think um, for I think for most women in that case, probably reducing salt and increasing potassium is going to be the thing that's best going to help the water retention. In terms of both, and I don't know the mechanisms here, but in terms of both the water retention and the other symptoms of PMS, magnesium and B6 have been the top things that have been helpful. I think the doses... I'm I'm blanking here. Uh, I don't have 100% confidence on this, but I believe at the papers I was looking at, the doses are around uh, like 40 milligrams of B6. I would use P5P for the form of B6 and somewhere around 200, 200 or 300 milligrams of magnesium. Um, so higher doses of B6 than people are usually using and lower doses of magnesium than a lot of people are using. Uh, but both of those seem to have some positive benefits in a number of tr- human trials. And then for PMS symptoms, the data is less good for manganese, but low manganese levels correlate with PMS symptoms. And it's possible that manganese supplementation would help um, but no one has re- has clearly shown that. Uh, but notably, manganese along with B6 are cofactors for diamine oxidase. So it could all come back to uh, histamine metabolism in some way in, in terms of some of those symptoms. I don't think I don't think histamine would be related to the water retention, but headaches and, 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 and mood disturbances maybe. That's really interesting. And I'm definitely going to plug your book, uh, Testing Nutritional Status, because I think that's a great place for people to delve in and try to figure out what they specifically need to take. This podcast is sponsored by Fabletics, my go-to source for quality, affordable athletic wear. This company was co-founded by Kate Hudson with a mission to bring trendy athletic wear to everyone at affordable prices. And here's how they do that. After you take a quick 60-second style quiz, they give you a personalized showroom of pieces that are specifically catered towards your own unique style. Right now, you can get two pairs of leggings for only $24. That's a $99 value and less than the price of a Lululemon sports bra, even secondhand on, at a website. So um, as a VIP, you can get all of that at fabletics.com forward slash wellness mama. And that includes my favorite, the high-waisted power hold leggings that are so flattering, even in places that I have a little bit of a bulge or loose skin from all of my pregnancies. Make sure you enter your email address at the end of the quiz because you will receive exclusive monthly discounts and sales, especially seasonal sales, and the inside scoop about new collections that haven't been released yet. Again, check out fabletics.com forward slash wellness mama. That's F-A-B-L-E-T ics.com forward slash wellness mama to grab the deal while you can and check out my favorite power hold leggings while they're still in stock as styles change monthly. This podcast is brought to you by the Keon Clean Energy Bar. We all know that finding healthy snacks for you and your kids is no simple task. Most snacks, even the so-called healthy ones, are high in sugar, 
don't have a lot of nutrients, or will leave you feeling tired or hungrier than before. That's why Keon created the Keon Clean Energy Bar, which is delicious and all natural, and it will satisfy your appetite and give stable, long-lasting energy. My kids love these, and I love that Keon bars are made from all real food ingredients, like coconut, almonds, and chia. They have zero refined sugar. They have a lot of healthy fats and clean protein, so they are a clean source of fuel for the body and brain. They're naturally gluten, dairy, and soy-free, contain lots of electrolytes, vitamins, and minerals, and even though they're chocolate, they won't melt in the heat or freeze in the cold, and their delicious chocolatey coconut flavor and texture is one that both kids and adults love. Right now, you can get 10% off the Keon Clean Energy Bar by going to get keon.com forward slash wellness mama and using the code mama 10 m-a-m-a 10 at checkout so again that's g-e-t-k-i-o-n.com slash wellness mama and make sure to use the discount code capital m-a-m-a 10 but i am curious when it comes to women and hormone fluctuations either during pregnancy or just during normal monthly cycles are there nutrients in general in any amounts that you would say on average most or all women should be taking or it's safer to take than not take? Uh, can you can you go over the context again? You're talking about pregnancy or you're talking about through the menstrual cycle? I feel like those would probably have to be separate answers. But um, during pregnancy, are there things that women need to be especially cognizant of? Yeah. So I, I think, I mean, I mean pr- so pregnancy, the nutritional recommendations are generally made around birth defects. And I think those are, I mean, I would reinforce those. So like the the typical pregnant woman is going to get put on prenatals that have extra folic acid in them, for example. I would say you want to make sure you're getting full, full, I would prefer using methylfolate as a supplement. But I think making sure you're getting the RDA for folate through that is really important because even though I mean that's mainly used to prevent neural tube defects, which are um, mainly spina bifida, and then a, another rare one that that is just fatal. It's quantitatively like the likelihood of that happening is very small, but the consequences are so devastating that it, you know it's just worth it to reinforce those recommendations. One nutrient that I haven't talked about yet, but applies across the board to all estrogen-related things here, and actually, this is a good this is a good bifurcation between pregnancy and other estrogen conditions. So, estrogen increases copper absorption from the gut, and pr- the placenta during pregnancy causes all that extra copper to go to the baby. So I don't think that you need extra copper during pregnancy because you hyperabsorb copper and you hypertransport it to the fetus. But estrogen outside of pregnancy causes you to hyperabsorb copper just as much and you don't have a placenta. So there's nowhere to put it, it just accumulates. Now in in most cases probably what happens is the woman's liver just makes more proteins that bind copper, such as seroloplasmin, to protect the copper from causing problems. But if the woman does not make enough seroloplasmin and other copper binding proteins, the free copper can cause a lot of problems. It can cause serious problems in the eyes. It can accumulate in the brain and contribute to neurodegenerative diseases later in life. It can generally cause oxidative stress. 
So what I would suggest is normally I would say the upper limit for where you really want to steer clear of copper is like 10 milligrams. I would cut that down to five milligrams for anyone who is on supplemental estrogen. You know, during the estrogen peaks in the menstrual cycle, if the menstrual cycle is normal, I'm not too worried about it because it just goes up for a couple of days, comes down, goes up for another couple of days, comes down. It's not a major. You're going to hyperabsorb copper during that time, but you know, more more days than not, you just have normal normal estrogen levels for a woman, and so it all kind of evens out. But when you're on birth control or when you're on hormone replacement therapy, you're essentially getting those are essentially the only other conditions where you'd have chronic exposure to estrogen like you would in pregnancy. So you're going to hyperabsorb copper and not have any place to put it. So I think it's it's best to cut the upper limit for copper in half down to five milligrams. And then just more generally, not go out of your way to increase to five milligrams. So I'm not too worried about foods. Copper-rich foods include liver, mushrooms, seaweed, shellfish. You know, those other foods have pr- things that balance copper and protect copper from causing problems, like zinc, for example. So, I'm not. I'm not saying you know micromanage your foods and don't hit five milligrams, but I'm saying like don't go out. You know, if you're taking supplements, don't use supplements to go above five milligrams total intake, and you know, don't go out of your way to try to hit five milligrams or higher with your foods. But for pregnancy, I would say, you know, the copper is just sort of like you want to get your minimum requirement for copper and you don't have to alter it because you are going to absorb it better and you are going to do something with that copper. For pregnancy, like we said, for more... uh, So another concern with pregnancy is vitamin A. And I don't think the evidence is strong on this, but there is some very limited evidence that I think is very shaky that vitamin A intakes over 10,000 IU during the first eight weeks of pregnancy could cause birth defects. And I want to reiterate here, like triple, triple reiterate here, the data is not good. The data is not good. The data is not good. However, most women have no need to go over 10,000 IU of vitamin A. I mean, yes, if you have signs of vitamin A deficiency because you're poorly absorbing it or there's some other thing that is causing your needs to go up and you're monitoring blood levels and you're working with someone who's sort of managing your nutrition with you, fine. But if you're planning on getting pregnant and you don't have any symptoms of vitamin A deficiency and you don't have any reason to think you have higher than normal needs of vitamin A, then even though the data is not good, the data is not good, the data is not good, it's prudent to not supplement with vitamin A to bring your intakes of retinol, which is the animal form of vitamin A that we're most concerned with here, to not bring those over 10,000 IU per day. After eight weeks, it probably doesn't it doesn't matter. So I think that's that's one concern that's that women will encounter, and that's basically like if they hear it, they might hear it another put another way by someone who's looked at the data less. Like vitamin A is toxic to your baby. Don't take vitamin A when you're pregnant. So I, I would what I just said I think is the way to say that that actually sticks to the kernel of truth that's there. And then, like we said before, managing morning sickness. And just being proactive with maybe 300, uh, I would say maybe like one to 300 micrograms of molybdenum on a proactive basis and 10 to 20 milligrams of B6 on a proactive basis as P5P. And then 
you know, or for, I mean, for, if, for, for women who are philosophically natural minded and don't want to take extra supplements, I would say like, you know, try to hit your targets for those foods. But honestly, like telling a woman to eat a lot of beans when she's pregnant might not go over very well. So, so taking one to 300 micrograms of molybdenum, taking 10 to 20 milligrams of P5P form of B6. And then, uh, well, one thing I didn't mention before is that folate, all the evidence, all the uh, emphasis is on folate, but choline is very important to methylation, helps conserve folate. And although we don't have data in pregnant human women, we have data from rats suggesting that if we were to extrapolate to humans, suggesting that if a woman got three times the basal requirement for choline during pregnancy and during nursing, and then supported the the growing child with three times the minimum recommendations for the first four years of life, that that could have extremely profound ben- benefits to the brain, especially as an increase in audio spatial memory, dealing with you know sounds and visual perception of space, uh, preventing interference memory, which is the which is the kind of memory loss where you forget where you parked your car when you go to the grocery store because you parked at that grocery store thirty you know three hundred fifty times before and you're mixing all the three hundred fifty memories of where you parked your car, and then uh, also in these rats, there's it basically fully protects them from age related senility at the end of life. So we're talking about choline during pregnancy, nursing, and first four years of of the child's life conferring brain benefits at you know 70 80 90 years old so i think i actually have a good thing to link in the data in the uh, show notes would be my choline database you can also google master john choline database and you can go see my recommendations there of how to get choline from foods and if you could make a mix of choline and betaine that gets up around 12 or 1300 milligrams a day from those foods um, then I think that would be great to do. And you can make up the balance with supplements. I have specific recommendations for how to get choline supplements on there as well. Um, and to, I would summarize those by saying phosphatidylcholine is the best form of choline to take. And it's a form that's predominant in food. And you just have to be careful that usually when you take a supplement, the dose of phosphatidylcholine and not the dose of choline is mentioned on there. So you have to multiply it by excuse me, you have to divide the dose on the bottle by eight to know the amount of choline you're getting. And then um, and then trimethylglycine or TMG is another, Is you could just sort of like take that alongside the phosphatidylcholine half and half to get that. And then the last thing I would mention is biotin. So about one third of women spontaneously become biotin deficient during pregnancy. And Biotin deficiency can cause a lot of skin problems and mood problems. So depression is a major risk of biotin deficiency, as is dermatitis, which can affect a number of areas around the face and also the perineum, which is between the vagina and the anus. That particularly dermatitis in that area is like being in the perineum would be kind of a red flag for biotin deficiency. Um, but also the fact that that just with bi- good markers, we know that a third of women just become biotin deficient when they're pregnant because of their pregnancy. And it goes away after pregnancy, but how many women develop skin problems and depression during or after pregnancy, right? 
So getting a few eggs a day would be your best bet. Honestly, if you try to meet the choline requirements I was just talking about, you will by accident meet the biotin requirements. Uh, But it's also perfectly safe to keep to put you know as much as one, two, three, four, five milligrams of biotin in your food, which is actually way higher than you would what you would need. Uh, What you're getting for food if you shoot for like four egg yolks a day is going to be more on the order of 30, 40, 50 micrograms. And a microgram is a thousandth of a milligram. So that's, you know, but basically with a supplement, if you add like one milligram of biotin in there, you're getting completely safe amount of biotin that is definitely in excess of what you need. That's my general view of, of pregnancy. That was super helpful. And last one I'll ask you about today, but I think I'm just going to have to keep asking you back, is vitamin D. Because I know I've seen studies on vitamin D deficiency and like low birth weights or premature labor, and there seem to be some really big implications, but also it is one that can store in the body, for at least from what I've read. So I know it's one that you want to test and you want to know what your levels are. Do you have any data that you've seen or guidelines you would give about what target vitamin D level to aim for and what form is best to get that from? Yeah. So, you know, vitamin D is is interesting because there has been so much enthusiasm and research on vitamin D promoting high levels of it that we kind of have this, you know, which was, which was genuinely uh, merited by the fact that there has been and still is widespread inadequate vitamin D levels. Like there was a study in the UK a couple decades ago that showed that in the third trimester of pregnancy, women in the UK on average would have their vitamin D levels drop to zero. That's like, you know, so ridiculously in need of vitamin D, right? And yet we have like this bifurcation between kind of the general population where they probably need more vitamin D. And then we have health conscious populations where everyone's supplementing. And if anything, they're, you know, the majority of those people are probably getting too much, even though there, you know, certainly are people with, with very high needs that are, that are minorities, but, but are, but are important to include here. And so, yeah, it's fat soluble, um, but you know, more importantly, it does have a toxicity profile and it does increase the risk of soft tissue calcification. And I also think that I think we always have a danger when people are told to avoid vitamin A and to take vitamin D. The risk of soft tissue calcification is going to increase because vitamin A protects against soft tissue calcification caused by too much vitamin D. So I think on a background for this vitamin D supplementation, you don't want to get into the hype around paranoia about vitamin A because that in and of itself is going to make vitamin D less safe. But in pregnancy, the vitamin D needs are very similar to a non-pregnant woman for the first two trimesters. And then in the third trimester, the fetal skeleton starts to get mineralized. And when that happens, there's like a massive mobilization of calcium, phosphorus, and vitamin D all going towards the mineralization of the fetal skeleton. And that's when you see 25-OHD levels, which is the marker that we use for vitamin D nutritional status drop in women's blood. Now, vitamin D is also complicated by the fact that the levels of the markers change during pregnancy. And so it's actually like 
it makes things difficult because the way that they change are not it's sort of it's well characterized what happens but it's not well characterized what it means in terms of how to reinterpret the markers to know whether women need more or less and as a result i think that there like what what the reason that makes things difficult is that we have this voluminous data on you know thousands of studies of tens or really hundreds of thousands of people on how to interpret those markers and they just don't apply to pregnant women so what happens in pregnancy is that 25 OHD which is the traditional marker that is mostly used to assess vitamin D status goes down calcium levels go down and parathyroid hormone levels go down parathyroid hormone or PTH is generally a marker of like the higher it is the more you need vitamin D and calcium and meanwhile, calcitriol, which is the active hormonal hor- form of vitamin D, goes up. And I think these are probably adaptations to supply calcium to the fetus while simultaneously ri- um, minimizing the risk of bone loss to the mother. Because PTH, which rises when you're deficient in calcium and vitamin D, helps mobilize calcium to get into your blood by taking it out of your bones. So basically what pregnancy is doing, and calcitriol, the active hormonal form of vitamin D, it does take calcium out of your bones, but it also increases absorption of calcium from your food. So basically PTH and calcitriol are two different ways that you can mobilize more calcium into the blood, which in the case of pregnancy, you're trying to get it to go to the fetus. And what pregnancy is doing is, and I don't know what mediates this estrogen, progesterone, or um, you know, chorionic and I, I don't know what it is. Something in pregnancy is shifting the balance to a calcitriol dominant state to take more calcium out of your food and less calcium out of your bones. That way, overall, you get net more calcium moving to the fetus, but to the degree you can, you're not taxing the mother's bones. You can support that system by supplying more vitamin D to the mother. And that's going to funnel in to bring 25 OHD levels back up, which we measure as the main marker of nutritional status. That's also the precursor to calcitriol, so it's going to spill into calcitriol production. The more calcitriol you get and the less PTH you get, the more you're going to protect the mother's skeleton while also simultaneously maximally extracting calcium from food to shift towards the fetus. At the same time, you can support that by getting more calcium in the diet. We talked about this last time. I think the calcium requirements, the official calcium requirements are not um, changed during pregnancy, if I remember that right. But I, you know, I I think for I think they clearly are physiologically. Um, and more to the point, I think a lot of women who are, you know, maybe altering what they eat because of pregnancy and their food aversions and so on. And then on top of that, women in our audiences who are health conscious are often, especially like in the paleo world, this is also true in the vegan world, a lot of people are worried about calcium supplements. And I would say that in pregnancy, especially in the third trimester, to support mineralization of the fetal skeleton with minimal risk to the woman's bones, you at least want to hit the RDA for calcium 
Um, so getting, and I would say go a little bit above it. So um, he consistently hitting like 12 or 1300 milligrams of calcium, I think would be the ideal thing alongside taking whatever vitamin D will keep your 25 OHD levels up into the normal range, which, you know, to me, you're looking at 30 to 40 nanograms per milliliter in my opinion. Um, and then, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's perfectly safe to take an extra one or 2000 IU of vitamin D if you're not measuring your blood levels, but it would be ideal to measure your blood levels. Amazing. That is so practical and helpful. And once again, our time has completely flown by and you're just going to have to come back at some point because we have so much more. <laughs> I'd be happy to. Thank you so much for the time today. I know how busy you are and I'm so grateful for you coming back again to share even more. And I look forward to more episodes in the future. Awesome. Can't wait. And thanks to all of you for joining us and listening today. And I hope that you will join me again on the next episode of the Wellness Mama podcast. If you're enjoying these interviews, would you please take two minutes to leave a rating or review on iTunes for me? Doing this helps more people to find the podcast, which means even more moms and families can benefit from the information. I really appreciate your time. And thanks as always for listening.